Welcome to Ms. Interpreted, her podcast of public relations and strategic communications, demystified by Kelly Fletcher and Fletcher Marketing PR. Welcome, listeners, to the Misinterpreted Podcast. I'm Kelly Fletcher, CEO of Fletcher Marketing PR, and I'm here with my wonderful dear colleague, <laughs> Fletcher Senior Strategist, Mary Beth West. Merry Christmas. Well, Happy Hanukkah. Yeah, Happy yes, holidays. Absolutely. Merry Christmas and all of those wonderful holidays to you and to all of our listeners, Kelly, and also to our sound engineer, Chris Hill of Humble Pod, who's here and ready to queue up some walks down memory lane for us today. It is our last podcast of the 2000. 2019 calendar year, I believe, right? Yeah, I can't believe it. This has to have been the fastest four months of my life. <laughs> That's what they say, right? When you get older, time starts to fly. But this whole podcasting experience has gone extremely well. And I swear, although good Southern girls aren't supposed to swear, <laughs> I've been known to just a few times. <laughs> just tension there. Reliever there. <laughs> We're breaking all kinds of taboos. I could swear that each week just ticked by in a nanosecond because yeah. it was almost always, oh my gosh, it's recording day or posting yeah. day. And just, wow, we're now on our 14th episode and 14 weeks went by so fast. It did. It did. I'm not quite sure we were supposed to have all this much fun, but I'll take it. Uh, it was, <laughs> anywhere we can get that and be able to have some fun in the process. It was a fun process for sure and has been. Looking forward to next year as well as we continue it. And I will say it was a huge leap and social experiment, I think, for us to get into this. But I think that Misinterpreted has been a major professional highlight of my year. Hopefully, it's been one for you too. But for me, it's been all thanks to you, Kelly. It's been so much fun. Oh, well, gosh, I couldn't have done it without you. And I still want to be a stage actress. So <laughs> this is like, this is, you know, my little side hobby. Yes, where living I, I can vicariously through yourself. Maybe, maybe I'm not singing, but I'm talking into a microphone. <laughs> that makes me happy. So, yeah. and with all of that, we're topping off season one of Misinterpreted with a quick look back at our 13 prior episodes. Lucky number, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've never been afraid of 13. No, I haven't either. And reflecting on some amazing guests. We've had some aha moments and lessons learned through the process. It's been a creative process. Well, that's what I love about production work like this. The creative process is, for me, the best part. I know that for you, that's a big thing that motivates a lot of the work that you, you do anyway. But, you know, Kelly, your idea about naming the podcast Misinterpreted reminded me why I love working with you. It's those Aww. constant little strokes of genius you have. <laughs> you know, I, for a long time when we were conceptualizing all of this, I was struggling with what to name this thing. And I was trying to come up with some suggestions so that I could come to the plate, you know, and, and give you some, some ideas. But you pulled this one right out of the air. And I, I thought it was a really good good name that encapsulated what we wanted to do here. And I I remember when we got the social media cover graphic designed and picked the sound bed music late this summer, that's when it got really real for me at that point that we were going to do this. And it was exciting. Thank you for the compliment. I love our theme music. Yeah. I, I fell in love with it the second you sent the audio file to me. Yeah, ditto that. That was all you. Well, shout out to Adrian Walther, who composed the this brilliant music of our intro and outro. Couldn't have been more perfect. Chris, can you cue that music here? And here we go. It has that kind of ethereal quality, right? I mean, it's just yeah. really, it's just got that vibe to it. I'd say so. And for fellow podcasters out there, 
Adrian Walther has an amazing songbook if you're looking for something uplifting for your production. I hear a lot of really good podcast music and a lot of really bad podcast yes, music. Yeah. And I think when you sent this selection to me, Mary Beth, I knew this was for real because at that point, the music just captured our vibe. Yeah, yeah. And you know the title of the song, right? I almost fell out of my chair when you told me. Yeah. Talk about a God moment in the words of Marshall Ramsey, one of our so interviewees. Tell everyone what the name of it yeah. is. <laughs> the name of our intro-outro sound bed by Adrian Walther is called She Knows. I mean, and could that not do. be more perfect? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and the name of our blog is Her Voice, so she knows her voice exactly. it all goes together. Exactly. So moving on here, I guess the good news for new listeners is that today's episode is a bit of a cheat sheet, right? The Cliff's Notes version for Misinterpreted. Yeah. So if you weren't sure you wanted to listen, this should give you an overview. And if you're new to Misinterpreted and haven't had the time to go through our full episode roster yet, today's show will give you some highlights and just the high points of what we've done so far. There were some really interesting themes that seemed to emerge from our conversation since episode one. So I think it'll be fun to take a look back. Yeah, there have been some incredibly compelling moments, I think. More than anything, I'm wanting to celebrate, though, the start of a platform that I know we're both so proud of and that has potential, I think, to take the conversation about public relations forward. That's something that's really important to me. I know it's important to you, too, that we are out there representing our profession in a positive way. I think that in that respect, we've been able to represent PR in a good and uplifting way, but sometimes with a little bit of tough love, too. I agree on the tough love and just with complete authentic transparency. And we'll give some examples in a minute. We've been all about telling the truth and being candid. When we first had conversations about what misinterpreted should focus on in terms of content, I had tons of ideas going through my mind, but I never wanted to lose sight of my firm's originating focus, which is on marketing to women, highly specific groups of women. And that's not to the exclusion of men, but focused on all aspects of how our, our knowledge base in this arena is more relevant than ever. Yeah. I remember those initial conversations you and I had. And in episode one of Introducing Misinterpreted, you said exactly that. So Chris, let's cue that soundbite. My vision for this podcast is to be very diverse. Mm -hmm. And when we think about marketing to women in that whole space, I want to point out that it's not to the exclusion of men, right. but it's just with a lens to the fact that women do make more of the decisions, not only when it comes to consumer purchasing decisions, but philanthropy decisions, right. um, behavior change decisions, decisions for their children and their families. And so... Based on my experience, that is where I feel like I have the most to lend and I have the most to say, but it's not to the exclusion of men. We're going to talk about a lot of diverse topics in the world of marketing and public relations. And so I want this podcast to appeal to a lot of people. Right. For me, those words that you said, Kelly, really set the tone for everything that's followed and what's to come from Misinterpreted. And on the topic of marketing to women, that episode, which I think was the third one in our lineup, has had the most downloads to date, in fact. What oh, must have been my spermicide story. I mean, that's... <laughs> Oh my God! That's hard. Well, to uh, I'll have to admit it caught my attention. Although I think folks could probably sense my deer in the headlights moment. I call it the Mary Beth's nervous laugh episode. So <laughs> you're take, so conservative. I know exactly. Well, you know, take a listen. 
is there one campaign that you thought you really got it right when it came to reaching, you know, whatever group of women you were trying to reach? I mean, is there an example that pops to mind for you? Well, I hope I don't get into trouble for this one, Mary Beth, because you're a little more conservative. It sounds like you're about to get into trouble. <laughs> Mary Beth Do is tell. a little more conservative than me. That's why we make such a good team. I go off on these crazy tangents and sometimes she was like, no, wait a minute. Like, have you really thought about that? Yeah, let me get my electric cattle prod here and just like be sure we're like shepherding this message and this conversation in the right way for both of us. Well, one of the most, I'm just going to go with it because it is my podcast. Yeah. Okay, my yeah. name's on it. Yes, so ma'am. I can talk about whatever I want to talk yes, about. Yes, indeedly doodly. So um, one of the, well, our most award-winning and one of our most effective campaigns was for a spermicide brand called Conceptrol. Mm-hmm. So we were working with this company out of New Jersey called Revive Personal Products, Kelly Kaplan, CEO. Hi, Kelly. We need to get you on the, the show. And um, they had purchased three or four products from P&G that P&G just wasn't really interested anymore. Yeah. So Revive took them over and one of them was Conceptual. It was in a boring blue box and it was positioned really low on the shelves and, and CVS and Walgreens and everywhere else. And so they worked on getting it moved higher up on the shelf, more eye level. And they wanted a campaign that would reach millennial, young millennial women um, that would educate them about what spermicide actually was because they didn't know because it was like your grandmother's birth control. However, there were all kinds of benefits to spermicide. It's non-hormonal. It's as effective as using a condom when used the right way and consistently. For preventing um, pregnancy. For preventing pregnancy, yes. And also, like, if you're nursing, it's a good alternative to keep from getting pregnant. I mean, how many women have you heard got pregnant when they were nursing? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nightmare. So... um, I probably shouldn't say nightmare because some women may love having Irish (laughs) twins. But all right, I'm off on another topic now. So anyway, so what we did is they kept pushing us to be edgier and edgier and edgier. You may not know this, but digital gaming, women playing games on their devices, on their iPads and their iPhones, we are the queens of that. We Mm -hmm. own that market. Right. We are 75 to 80% of the online gamers. Now, I'm not talking about video games. I'm talking about Candy Crush, Word, Wheel of Fortune. Well, for me, it's Scrabble. So that's how big a nerd I am. But anyway, go on with your story there, Kelly. (laughs) So we developed a digital game and we called it Spin the Sperm and it was educational. And so there were 12 sperms on a wheel. And um, there were that they had just, different personalities. Awesome. One was like bookworm sperm. One was jock sperm. One was like um, <laughs> playboy sperm. We, and so you would spin the wheel, and the, the the sperm would swim over, and it would ask you a question, and it would pop up. And so you were learning while you were playing a funny game. Yeah, you're getting educated on what this product does, and then you were scored. And based on that score, you got this was back in the day when you could get a Facebook badge. Mm-hmm. So you could get a Facebook badge to share. And so this campaign, we won two gold Addies. Um, see, see, and I remember the name of the campaign because I was sitting in the audience during one of these award programs. And I mean, you can't forget that name when it comes up and it's it's announced as a winner. So So I, you know, that it was a really interesting and creative approach, I think, to reaching a very small segment of the population. I mean, this was, we were trying to reach women 
you know, 20 to 32. And we didn't have a huge budget. So we had to do it primarily through digital and social, but it also generated a lot of PR because it was kind of out there and we sent out press kits. And just the creativity of it and just, you know, that's sort of an off the chart. So that's really, that's my favorite campaign ever. (laughs) All right. Anyway, let's talk about guests. That's a good way to change the subject. So part of what I loved is the opportunity to share our work as an agency, but even more, I've really loved having some incredible guests on to share their knowledge. We have had some of the best ones agreed um, that they have just been wonderful. Mark Weaver of Radio Systems shared his expertise on influencer marketing in episode six. That was very insightful. We also had that incredible panel on Tennessee tourism PR and the Tennessee Whiskey Trail early on. That included the distillers from Old Dominic and Memphis. Uh, Jack Daniels and Lynchburg. Uh, sadly, no product was left in the studio since we obviously could use it. <laughs> or less of it. <laughs> Jury's out. I mean, right. it's the holidays. But, and I have to mention our client, Kim Mitchell, from the Smoky Mountain Tourism Development Authority. Loved having her with us for that episode. Yeah. And we've also gotten into some pretty cerebral topics, sans whiskey, of course, going back to the tough love concept that we were talking about earlier. Well, I think most podcasters would agree and listeners that the thing listeners love most is good storytelling and hearing from other people. So that means lending voice to other compelling people, to thought leaders, creative thinkers, and those who can help everyone working in public relations today to think more broadly and certainly more strategically about what PR is and what it should be. Well, we hear a lot, I think, in the trade press and the trade media and a lot of other podcasts and even Twitter chats nowadays, they talk about the PR toolbox and how it's evolved so much. It has evolved at warp speed over the past 10 or 15 years. It's always shocking to me, though how little has actually changed about the core fundamentals of good PR. I mean, you're talking about research, messaging, outreach, trust, credibility, ethics. And it's just good business decision-making. Incredibly basic concepts, I think. And But that's essentially what PR is about and what it should be about. Well, and, you know, common sense is not so common, so yeah. that's why we're needed. <laughs> And that brings me to the ethics point, which you mentioned. Our first full episode of A Misinterpreted focused on ethics, with you taking the lead on that conversation, because for anyone who knows you or knows of you, (laughs) Uh (laughs) uh, you have been such a voice in our profession for PR. You've got a great backbone and integrity, and you're very passionate about ethics and calling upon the full management team to bring their most ethical decision-making to everything they're doing is something that you're really passionate about. And I remember this moment from episode two. So if you could advise three things for our listeners to do that would strengthen their stance on PR ethics and help them to build brand trust in ethical ways, what three things would you recommend? Well, I think that you know, I kind of go back to journalism, my journalism school days, and, and the mantra was always accuracy, accuracy, accuracy. Well, in Public relations, it's disclosure, disclosure, disclosure. It's absolutely being able to put forward information that people need for informed decision-making, which only inspires trust in the in the source of that information. So, you know, we have to come at this with an ethic of, uh, you know, building bridges through communication and open lines of communication and not being afraid to be questioned, not being afraid to be challenged in 
what we are putting forth in the marketplace of ideas. So that's the first item. And I would also say in line with that free flow of information, understanding that we cannot impede other people's opportunity to have a chance at the microphone or try to take away their microphone. Um, We, you know, when we are obstructive of other individuals or parties in, in, in doing that, it only looks like we have something to hide. So we have to advocate even for people who are challenging us to be able to communicate and be able to question. And the third item I would say is policy operations and behaviors first then communications. And again, that comes out of the Harold Burson School of Public Relations best practices. He is such an advocate, and I think the industry really needs to start paying far more attention to that, that we have to help management get the policies, actions, and behaviors right first, because only then can communications that inspire true trust building and relationship building with stakeholders really be able to manifest itself. I had always known where we stood on these issues, Mary Beth, but that moment, it was just so great to hear you say so clearly what everyone in our profession and our clients and would-be clients need to hear. Well, thanks to you for prompting the question on all of that and for the opportunity for me to express those ideas. Obviously, they're deeply held. But for me, though, the best advocate that we ever could have had, I think, for season one of the podcast on the subject of ethics was Francis Ingham of PRCA in London. It was just so great to have him on the show. And I can't wait to meet him. I absolutely loved his interview. And I'm so glad we made that into a two-part episode. First of all, it was an honor to have someone of of Francis's global leadership profile on the show. He leads a 30,000 member organization. And I'm just, I'm glad the phone line between Knoxville and London was clear enough to be podcast worthy (laughs) that day. Yeah, I agree. I was, I have to say that I was sweating bullets a little bit over that because I I knew that Francis was going to have so many powerful ideas to share and I wanted everybody to be able to hear every single one of them. And to that point, though, with Francis's organization, I do consider PRCA to be the future path for our field. So it was just so great to have them on. Part two of his interview was the kicker. I mean, it was just such a jaw dropper mm-hmm. for me in so many ways. And on the Bell Pottinger case study he right. talked about, where Francis literally had life-threatening retaliation yeah. against yeah. he and his family Personally, when PRCA expelled Bell Pottinger from its membership as a result of major ethics violations. I I was floored by what Francis revealed to us in that. I was very surprised. I had no idea that he had had that personal kind of experience, which (laughs) me being floored, that may be the understatement of the season. Chris, cue that segment, please. But the work that Bell Pottinger did was alleged and we agreed and stirred up racial hatred in South Africa and racial tension. And that is a terrible thing for PR people to do in a country that is so delicately poised. Um, so we received the complaint. We considered it very thoroughly. Um, it provoked quite the reaction. Um, so I had people turn up at my home in London, uh, from South Africa, threatening to kill me, um, hammering on the door in the middle of the night. Uh, I I don't know yeah, what to say to that. Um, I, mean, uh, I had no idea. <laughs> my word. 
Uh, yeah, it was quite scary. Uh, a, a van turned up at my house in the countryside to take my children away to kill them. Francis, I had no idea. Uh, and I wouldn't that see you, the. I, I had no idea about that. Oh my word! It was quite full on, and I'll get these videos every day of ways that um, people normally on a farm in South Africa had been tortured to death. And with with videos of them. So, and how would you like this to happen to you? Sort of content. Um, so some, they're they're all pretty graphic, and I've seen more ways that people can be killed than I would wish to see. And in the end, I I stopped looking at any of them. Um, and we had a fair bit of police involvement. Um, so I still, before I get out of the car, always now look behind me to see oh, if anyone's Jesus. behind me, uh, follow me. And it was all quite over the top. Um, but the it, it was seen as a very big moment in South Africa, um, and, and it was. Um, so we went through a legal process. We had a delegation from South Africa with lawyers and a delegation from Belpop with lawyers. Very legalistic process. We expelled them. Um, within a, a week of us expelling them, Belpop was no longer a company and none of the staff had a job. And I, I regret the fact they all lost their jobs, but it, you know, our ruling was pretty clear that this was exactly what a PR company should not be doing, stirring up hatred through its power of communication. Um, and uh, on, the, on the back of that, uh, the, the company having ceased to exist, um, I think the industry mm-hmm. got a great message you know, it rode in behind us, said this is the right thing to do. There are standards. They are enforced. Um, Richard Edelman in New York said it was a defining moment for the PR industry. Um, and I, I look at the consequence of had we done anything other than expel them. If we hadn't have expelled them, we would have said PR has no standards. But we did right. the opposite. And we proved PR does have standards. It is overwhelmingly ethical, but when something goes wrong, we enforce standards. And I think that's very important, actually. What a powerful moment, Mary Beth. Like you said, you could have scraped both of us off the floor with some of those revelations Francis shared of what he and his family went through. It was shocking. No one who's standing up for the truth should have to go through that. I know. And as I've learned firsthand, whistleblowers do go through a lot, but rarely at the level of what Francis encountered. In that moment, I think PRCA became an even bigger hero to me from a stalwart professional emblem of what ethics needs to be about. And really, Francis is leading from the front on that. Which is why we titled his interview Leading from the Front. Yes, yes. And from what I gather, PRCA is an organization to watch here, even in the U.S. It is. Exciting things are on the horizon in 2020, so do stay tuned on that. The cat who ate the canary, whatever. <laughs> well, on that note, I'd like to lighten things up a tad with a favorite moment from what I've awarded the trophy as the most hysterically funny guest of season one and perhaps certainly your favorite interview, Marshall Ramsey. Uh, yeah, the, the audio evidence, I think, from that episode is pretty overwhelming. I could not contain my laughter at times, so guilty as charged on that one. I was in New York, so I missed that episode, uh, but I yeah. listened to it on the way literally to grandmother's house on Thanksgiving <laughs> over the hills and through the woods. Right Now he's a 
Pulitzer-nominated editorial cartoonist, but also a member of the Charles West family, yes, right? Yes, And, um, of course, in one of my flub-ups in that interview, and there were many, I never explained the direct relationship of our family connection. I also failed to make clear the references to Dave Ramsey, our other famous cousin of financial peace fame, but I think the audience finally figured it out. But yeah, we do have some bona fide celebrities, as I mentioned, in the family. I was really glad that Marshall joined us. And you said that interview ran a bit long, but for me, yeah. it just flew by because yeah. it, was so, it was so good. He's such a good storyteller. He is. I had a hard time picking out my favorite moment here, but I'd love to revisit Marshall telling how he rebounded after he was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize for his editorial cartooning, but then got cut to part-time from Gannett because of budget reduction. I know. Well, of course, the the whole media maelstrom here has been, I mean, their whole business model over the past 10 to 15 years has just imploded in so many ways in terms of print media, newspapers in particular, that carry editorial cartooning content. So Marshall did have a great story. And when I asked Marshall how he found silver linings in tough situations like that, well, this is what he had to say. Let me tell you where I learned that lesson. I learned that lesson probably about six miles from here in the middle of Fort Lathen Lake. I was eight years old. Uh My dad, who was 40 at the time, was a big (laughs) eight-year-old, and he loved to water ski, and his son wouldn't water ski. So one day, he threw me out in the middle of the lake, and he said, you're not getting out of that lake until you get up on your skis. And he drug me up and down (laughs) that lake until I drank so much of that river water that I have gills (laughs) on the side of my neck. At the very end, right when he was getting frustrated, I popped up, which Uh surprised him Uh and it surprised me. Uh And I'm back there in the back. I'm in between the wake. You know, I don't want to get out there. And dad looks at me and he gets bored. You did not want my dad to get bored because suddenly he turns the boat as tight as he could to sling me outside the wake and he starts driving in a circle. So the boat's doing 20. I'm doing 450 miles an hour. And as anybody who knows anything about Ford Loudon Lake, there's a lot of driftwood on it. And yes, I do I know hit that. Like. Apparently, a sequoia. Um, I did like <laughs> five or six of just. <laughs> for those of you who are old like me, you remember the agony of defeat on Wide World of Sports. <laughs> that was me. So here I am. Xers were the Xers here. We know that. Right. That so I'm doing that, well. the eight flips, and the ski hits me in the back <laughs> of the head. And Dad, being a loving, caring man, pulls the boat around, and he starts <laughs> poking me with a paddle, saying, "Are you okay?" <laughs> and I'm laying there in the water, going. Go away. <laughs> he said, grab the rope. Um, I said, no, go away. I'm swimming back. He said, it's five miles. And it was about that far. We were pretty far down river. Yeah. And he said, no, grab the rope. I said, tell me one good reason why. And he said, because we're going to make your story about how you got back up, not how you fell down. He uh, said, don't get me wrong. I'm going to tell everybody how you fell down because it was hilarious. <laughs> 25, Dear old dad. 25 years later, I'm laying in bed on oxycodone or whatever the the painkiller was, I just had half my side card out, carved out because of cancer. Mm-hmm. My dad, he had cancer like a year before that. And I'm laying there and I'm dream, dreaming of purple hippopotamus and all kinds <laughs> of weird things. And I feel this pressure against my forehead. It's like a thumping feeling. And I'm thinking, this is a weird side effect, but I open my eyes and there's my dad leaning over me, poking me with his big fat finger. And I'm like, what are you doing? He said, get up. I said, I just had cancer surgery. He said, no, I'll help you up. We're going to walk around the block. And I said, why? He said, because we're going to make your story about how you beat cancer, not how you had cancer. When they made me part-time, I kept hearing my dad yell, grab the rope. 
it's not what happens to you. It's how you frame what happens to you. And I think sometimes we as a country, and I'm going to just get out my big Bob Ross, big brush and paint some happy trees here uh, to kind of paint with my big broad brush. But oh. I think sometimes we lack resilience. Yeah. And, and yes, I could have catastrophized and said, it's not fair. I'm I'm 50 years old now. I should be able to play golf every day. Well, I had melanoma, so I shouldn't be playing golf. Obviously, sunshine's yeah. not my friend. But the point is, why all this happened, I don't know. But I'm glad it did because I was able to be able to learn that I could do other things. I could learn about, you know, I graduated with a marketing degree from UT. That was once again my dad's doing. I'm giving dad a lot of props here, but he does deserve it. But yeah. mom too. But the fact that I was able to use my education to be able to figure out where I was going to go next. So yeah. why sit down and feel sorry about something saying, oh, it's an opportunity. And how in the world did you get through that interview without bursting into tears? <laughs> you mean in between the moments I was bursting with laughter? It's <laughs> sort oh, of a mix of the two. It was it, it happening sim simultaneously. I think we tweeted out that Dolly Parton quote from Steel Magnolias, oh, yeah. laughter through tears is my favorite emotion. Yes, yeah. That's Marshall Ramsey, I think, in a nutshell. I, <laughs> I would love to meet him in person someday. Well, you know, it certainly was that day. The only thing that would have made that interview more perfect would have been had you been able to be there with us. But I'm glad that you got a semi-mental health weekend in New York that week, even though it sounds like you were kind of working during that time I too. I did, but I got my Broadway fix. Good. Got my Broadway fix good, on. Good, good, good. But speaking of mental wellness, our episode just last week on PR entrepreneurship and burnout has spurred a lot of conversations out there, and I've gotten quite a few comments on it. Well, me too. Uh, we do seem to get the best play, I think, on podcast episodes that involve storytelling, particularly from a personal vantage point. You know, you got to keep it real. And I'm glad that we both shared our truth about the toll that this business can sometimes take, even as much as we love being in this business, it, it, it can be kind of stressful. Yeah, we definitely bared our souls on, on that episode. And in the keeping it real category, I'm going to have to give a shout out to Marcus Hall of Mark Nelson Denim, yeah. our guest for episode eight. Many of us already knew his incredible story, yeah. but to hear it straight from him, it just made me love him so much more. <laughs> of course. He, it was powerful, though, to see the true nature of your friendship with him. It was, it was like just one, one business person helping another business person, and in the face of his challenges in trying to return from... Well, you know, having made a major mistake and living what he described as a double life. I mean, take a listen to this. Well, Mark, you know, we talk on this podcast quite often about the entrepreneurial journey and my entrepreneurial journey. And I know when I started my business, I was a divorced single mom. I had no capital and I couldn't get it. Nobody would give me any money. I mean, what was your experience trying to start and run a business as a minority business owner? Is that the reason you turned to this dark side to fund, fund your business? Uh, you know what? And I'm not going to point the fingers or blame uh, anyone for it, mm -hmm. but it was definitely, uh, yeah. So for, for my um, apparel business, I mean, a guy who had, you know, really no experience in running a an apparel company, uh, the the easy out was yes, it, it was easier for me to go the dark to the dark side or run an illegal gambling operation. Uh, but for me, uh, looking back, it was the people I surrounded myself with at the time. Mm. So uh, I'm, you know, I I tried the traditional ways, and and for me, it also I didn't want to take the I took the shortcut. 
you know, I could have potentially uh, built up enough credit, enough capital to um, start a uh, an apparel business. But I mean, I would still likely be working on that. Yeah, I mean, you know what I mean? It would have taken a long time. Mm-hmm. And so the the opportunity uh, came about from a, an old friend that said, "Hey." What do you think about this? And, you know, here we go. And had the opportunity, Kelly, um, I made the money to start the business and had several opportunities to, okay, say, hey, this this is to, now I can quit. But uh, greed is, you know, a whole nother uh, story that we mm-hmm. could talk about. Yeah. Well, well, and that uh, that operation that you had, I mean, it was turning some serious cash. Right. So it was super hard to... Uh, turn that kind of money. Yeah. I mean, it'd be hard right. for anyone. And I, I'd say that to say, hey, you, you, I'm going to walk away from making, you know, a, a million, a couple million dollars a year or whatever. So yeah, mm-hmm. it, it is. It's, it, it was tough. Yeah. Well, backing up to, I uh, mentioned we met, you came to a Christmas party at our office and we knew each other from afar. But when we really got to be friends was when you got out of prison. So I remember the day it all blew up and I think everybody was shocked because you are you're a celebrity in our <laughs> yes. You're a celebrity in our town, and, and then I you got out of prison, and I ran into you on Market Square, and we were just chatting, and we you said, hey, I you know, I'd love to get some advice on um, social media and using influencer marketing for my business. I'm trying to get it started back up. So we set up lunch. We go to lunch at the Oliver Royale, and you were just so honest. And, and you had to pay because I didn't have any money. <laughs> 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 well, you, you've paid us back now by being here. So I don't good. remember if I paid or not. But no one's keeping score. Uh, no one's keeping score. But I, I just love the fact that you said, here's what happened. Yeah, and the honesty. I was like, yeah, you know, man, what happened? And you just were so honest and authentic that I think that that has really been what has kept people so rooting for you and cheering for you to make a comeback. And, and you have. And it's funny that you say that, um, again, the day that I got pulled over and I, you know, I thought, you know, wow, I finally made it. Uh, one of the things that I, and I, and I look back and reflect on now is just, I truly was, as they were putting me in handcuffs or was having an out of body experience, like who the hell is this going to, they're putting handcuffs on them and whoa. And, and, uh, and the days that followed that, you know, wow, you, you think about what am I going to tell everyone? Yeah. Uh, but yeah. at the time I, it, it's interesting living a lie, how much stress and pressure that can bring bring upon yourself. You it's know like what I mean? a double life it's kind a double, of thing. And I yeah. totally was, you know, James Bond in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was like this guy who was running this gambling operation. Then I was this guy that was running this apparel business. And it was truly, you would think that I would be happy, but I was, I would, you know, for the last few months, right before I got in trouble, I was constantly complaining about, man, something's not right. Something's not right. But you talk yourself into, you know, you're not going to pay attention to the obvious. And, and so, um, Karen in present life, when we ran into each other, um, Kel, it was, yeah, it was a weight lifted off my yeah. shoulder. And so, you know, after you finally went through the, pro- you know, the process of going to court and then finally going to prison, those first couple of weeks of prison, it was like, wow, man, I don't have to lie anymore. You know what I mean? Like, wow. yeah. So this is the next chapter in my life where I can be just transparent and, uh, you know, and whatever happens, happens, you know, and if people accept me and fine, if they don't, then too bad. I mean, yeah. yeah. And so you do, you get rid of, you, you lose that shell. And so, uh, that's the fire, you know, burning up. And then, you know, the, the things that grow thereafter is, is, are the beautiful things, you know, it, it's obviously a horrible scene and you never want to see tragedy happen to anyone. You speaking of those fires, but, uh, the recovery right. can be a beautiful process, a right. beautiful thing. 
wow, I quote, I don't have to lie anymore. I mean, those words of, of Marcus, I mean, that, there's just real power behind that. If only more executives or politicians who've chosen the wrong path could be as honest as he was, you know, with themselves and others to, you know, just to understand the true power of truth telling. It just, everything he said was, you know, really hit home to me. I love the interview. And it was one of those that was special to me because it came from our local community. And I really yeah. hope listeners will be sure to listen to that episode from start to finish because it's totally worth it. Yeah. Well, another one that really stopped me in my tracks was episode 12, just several weeks ago with Mike McClamrock of East Tennessee Foundation. You know, Marshall Ramsey was another guest who had a very moving and personal story about the late University of Tennessee Lady Vols head coach, Pat Summit. But when Mike told us his story, there was some special power to it. Yeah, he's such a prolific speaker. And for our listeners who aren't from Knoxville or from Tennessee, it might be difficult to realize the place that the late coach Pat Summit had and continues to have in the hearts and spirits of Tennesseans. She was a -a one-of-a-kind leader. She will never be replaced. And her battle with Alzheimer's set a new course in the medical fight against the disease. Mike shared with us a story so personal that gave us a glimpse into Coach Summit's own true generosity and putting others before herself. And I think the lesson learned from Mike's Pat Summit story, too, is this answer to the very common PR question, how do you convince someone to embrace your cause? I mean, back in the 1990s, I so well remember Sports Illustrated had Coach Summit on its magazine cover during her multi-win national championship streak under the headline, The Wizard of Knoxville. Do you remember that? Sports Sports Illustrated. I actually don't. <laughs> well, it was... I didn't live here then. Oh, that's right. That's right. Well, it was really very impactful in the market and it had this photo of Coach Summit on the on the front cover when he talked in his interview, Mike did, about those steely blue eyes and like that stare. They... Sports Illustrated really knew how to capture it. So I just um, I just remember with the, the, the story that Mike shared, I think everyone there who'd heard that was reminded exactly what Pat Summit was made of and, you know, that she commanded a respect based on lifelong integrity that her presence could stop anyone in their tracks. And in Mike's words, he was stunned. Hey, Chris, please roll that one. This one um, is really personal mm-hmm. for, for me, Mary Beth. I remember being invited out to Pat's house to meet with her. She had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, but she was doing well. And we had a great conversation. And I sat at her kitchen table with her two Labrador retrievers at my feet. And she began to kind of tell her story about where she grew up and the things that she was proud of and the things that were important to her. And she leaned across the table and she said this to me. She said, Mike, I am really proud of what we've been able to accomplish at the University of Tennessee. She said, do you you know that 100% of my players achieved their degree? And I didn't know that. And I said, wow, you know, that is really an accomplishment. And think of the difference you've made in those young women's lives. And she leaned in closer and she looked at me. And I don't know if you remember or you've ever heard this, but she had the most intense stare Mm -hmm. and the most steely blue eyes. And she looked at me and she said, but Mike, 
What I want my legacy to be is to beat this disease and I need your help. And I was stunned and she looked at me and then immediately she followed up with, will you help me? And there is no way that anybody in that situation is not going to look her right back directly in the eyes and say, yes, I will help. I will do everything I can. Mm -hmm. And as a result, the Pat Summit Foundation came to East Tennessee Foundation. We are their back office. Mm -hmm. Uh, We do all those functions that we've mentioned earlier. And we've had to kind of transform. This is a fund that requires a different kind of work than any of our other funds. Uh, Most of our other funds are not national or international in scope. Um, We've had to do certain business functions that we have never had to do before for other funds. For example, there are 38 states across the United States for which you have to apply for a solicitations permit in order to raise funds in their state. So some of our fundraising appeals with the Pat Summit Foundation are national. So we, we have, it's been a steep learning curve. Right. Um, we've had to do lots of things differently. It's our most high profile fund by far, but it also is one of our most important and we all work together. So there are two people whose primary objective is to advance Uh, the Pat Summit Foundation and do that work. And we're really proud of the the Pat Summit Clinic at the University of Tennessee. And we're also proud of the grants that we make uh, in the area of caregiver support, in the area of education about Alzheimer's, and then also research for a cure. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're really proud of that work. Mm -hmm. Uh, Its influence continues to grow across the country, and we are remaining true to our commitment to Pat to help this, her foundation, be her lasting legacy. That's such an inspiring story. It's it's hard to go on after that. It's like we should just end (laughs) right right there. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Wow. Still can't get over that story. And I guess I'm reminded that sometimes the best public relations people are those incredible leaders who don't even consider themselves PR people or Uh consider PR as their profession or their career. I agree. But those who just have that innate gift of relating to other people, connecting to them, and tapping into that power to enlist their buy-in to do the right thing, to do good things, to serve a higher calling. Well, and Pat Summit was one of those people. And while leaders of her caliber are incredibly rare, I think, I think that many of the qualities of leadership and caring about real relationship building are widely shared among many people. They are. And I mean, I I think in our own business and and in our own relationship, Mary Beth as colleagues and friends, that rings true to me and is important to me. I think that's part of what made that interview so relatable to anyone who was listening to it. So as we get set for season two of Misinterpreted in the new year, 
I can't wait to hear more stories from our guests and share that same kind of wisdom. Well, I'll be right there with you. And Kelly, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. And to our listeners as well. Merry Christmas. We'll see everyone in 2020. Enjoy some much-needed time off with your family and friends. Our next episode will be airing on Wednesday, January 8th, and we'll interview Bob Dickey, CEO of Bonvera. Please follow us as well at Twitter handle at Fletcher PR. You can also follow me at KD Fletcher and Mary Beth at Mary Beth West. We will respond to your questions and comments, so please post them using the hashtag misinterpreted, and that's hashtag MSinterpreted. And for visibility's sake, don't forget to capitalize the PR. Thanks for joining us. Until next time. Thanks for joining us on Misinterpreted, Public Relations Demystified. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at FletcherMarketingPR.com and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next time.